0: Is where we're going to start tonight. Well, goodness gracious. That's just not going to do, I don't guess. All right. Well, we'll move on with what we got. Um, Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to read two verses, verses 18 and 19, and uh, we'll go ahead and, and, and study the scriptures together. Um, in verse 18, of Isaiah 43, Isaiah writes, he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Not, uh, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. Father God, I pray God that I have prepared, that I have prayed, Father God, and submitted myself to this word, Lord. God, it's something I needed to deal with today, God. And I thank You, Father, that for the time You've allotted for me to be able to God, uh, to, to grapple with the Scripture over, over the, 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 the this last uh, amount of time, Father. And I, I thank You, Lord, that I've been able to think about it and pray over it and meditate over it. And that I've been able to make a personal connection with this, Lord. Because that's so important, Lord. I know I needed to hear what I'm trying to, to sound out tonight, Father. And so I pray, Lord, for Your people as they listen to Your Word. Pray, Father God, that our hearts are engaged. Father God, that our minds are are engaged also, Father, and that we will come to a point, Lord, tonight in hearing the Word, where You, God, will bring us to to change, Lord, it will bring us to change an attitude or an idea. Bring us to apply ourselves differently to this world, to, to make a deeper and a better connection, Father. I thank You, Lord, for what You've done for us. I thank You, Lord, more than anything else, for the gift of the cross, Father God, for Jesus Christ, Lord, who takes away our sins, Lord. I ask You, please, God, to bless us now that we can be joyous in Him always. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So, um, as believers, um, how can we forget the past and live for the future that we will inherit in Christ? Man, as I grappled with that, that's my question today. I said, man, for me, that feels like everything, guys. And, and let me explain why. I guess it's being a little older. And all, a lot of us in this room are kind of like that. We're getting older, right? We realize that we've lived more of the time that we have than we have remaining. Is that fair to say? Not, not, yeah. not Him alone. <laughs> Are you kidding? Uh, we, Russell has proven he will be around a long time. <laughs> um, he is not indestructible, but he's very durable. There's no doubt. Um, but brother Russ, we have lived more than well, more than half our lives, right? If we live a long life, most of it's gone. It just is. It's just the way to put it. It is. And in some ways, um, in light of the of the cross. That's a good thing. That's an encouraging thing. We understand the promises that the Scripture makes and that everything good comes to us in the end, all in a rush. What is going to look like sorrow is literally going to be swallowed up in victory in Christ. We, we remember that every time we have a funeral in this church, that God is victorious over the thing we're mourning. Right? However, the one thing that I'm reminded of, and as I really meditated over what God had blessed me to write today, I said to myself, Father, so much of my life is spent in sorrow and regret from the past. Things I wished I could go back and change. And I know I can't. Now, look, look, not just that point's not just embodied in the people who've gone on before us to Christ. But it's embodied in every heartbreak. Those things that they feel like they just tore out our soul. That how do you how do you move on past that? How do you keep living for Christ when you feel like your life is shattered? Now look, everybody knows that there are things that can happen to you. What was it one pastor said one time? We were all one phone call away from being on our knees. One. Sometimes it's the the accumulation of of a lot of blows, though, isn't it? Sometimes it's it's a thousand little things. It's proverbially it's the it's the you know, it's the, the weight of a, of, a, of a million feathers. Individually things that, that wouldn't bother us. But over time, they're, they're, they're striking and shaking to us. And so for that reason, I said to myself, I know what I've, one of those things I have to do. It's not just talk people through grief and sorrow. Because you do when you're in the church. It is, how do you keep people going when, when they've had a lifetime of grief and sorrow. A lifetime of... I think we've talked about this before. Folks, one of the hardest things in the world to deal with is disappointment. You desperately wanted something to turn out a certain way and it just didn't happen that way. We feel like disappointments are for children, but those disappointments as adults, they can take a long time to get over, can't they? You so desperately wanted this to be a certain way and it just didn't turn out that way. You felt like you did everything right. You prayed and you fasted and you surrendered and you devoted and you worshipped and it just wasn't in God's will. But you, you desperately wanted it. You needed for this to be true. and It just wasn't. It's hard. It's hard to go through these things. So, so how do we do this? So how do we stop replaying every insulting or tragic moment in our heads? You've been calling it, I I guess, I've called it in the past stuck. Sometimes I've been stuck in my life. And what I mean by this, guys, is is that that something happened that was maybe maybe an attack, and I just couldn't get past it. It was maybe a betrayal, and I just couldn't get myself past it. I couldn't get to the point where I stopped thinking about it all the time. I call that being stuck. I don't know what else to call it. Obsessing over something negative. How do we do that? How do we follow Christ to the extent that we don't get caught up in things that we know can catch us? We know can catch us. How can we find peace in a world of terror? The final moments of the prophet Isaiah are part of a chilling and heartbreaking narrative. In Hebrews eleven thirty-five 35-39. I preached through this before. This is familiar territory. Um, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Some were tortured... Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. I clung to that only half of the previous verse, verse 35, because I don't know how many people are really like that. As We've talked about in terms of current events, this is being lived out again in the Christian world, right? This time in Afghanistan. Again. It's happened in Afghanistan before. How many people are going to be tortured and refuse to stop being tortured because they'd rather go on to that final moment and be in the better life. Lots of us would just want the pain to stop, right? How many people say the pain is my, way, is my avenue to freedom? Very few. Very few, I imagine. In verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Again, this is something that happened in the past. This is something that the writer of Hebrews was probably seeing taking place in the future, in the persecution of the church, especially under Nero, right? These these, uh, persecutions that would decimate the Christian world, the early Christian world. So he'd seen it in the past. He was living through it in the present. And the implication is what? We see it again and again. And we know that repeated over and over again, the church has been attacked like this, typically by its government. A government sworn to protect it has turned its, its... Uh, its wrath upon the church. In verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. The sawn in two part is historically, as far as church tradition, applies to Isaiah. The most wicked king that would ever rule over Israel or Judah was the king Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, whom God was preventing the birth of, right? Hezekiah was going to die. And he cried and begged God for more time, and God gave him 15 years, and in that 15 years, he received a male heir, who was Manasseh, who would rule for 55 years, and, and do things like cutting Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. Again, the illustration is this. Sometimes tragedy happens, but God always knows better. He just does. Just does. Hezekiah just wanted a son. I don't blame him. I don't blame him for wanting a son. I don't blame him for wanting an heir. I want to see his line and his name continue. But God knew better. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Historically mentioning a faithful one being sawn into is a reference to the death of Isaiah, who was dismembered by the order of the evil king Manasseh, using a wooden saw, um, in a passage concerning suffering. Isaiah's plight stands out through its cruelty. Yet we know one thing about Isaiah and the others whose names are omitted from the record of history. I think it's amazing that for one thing, Guys, Isaiah wrote a not, a not unsubstantial amount of the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Because remember, the book of Isaiah has been called a microcosm of the entire Bible, right? The entire Bible. And so, Isaiah is in many ways the herald of the new day. We understand what we understand about the coming of a new heavens and a new earth because of Isaiah first. But yet God leaves Isaiah anonymous in the book of Hebrews. But He makes one broad declaration about all of these martyrs. And what does He say? The world was not worthy of their sacrifice. That's what our God says about Isaiah. Isaiah's life and ministry, and they're defined by this hopefulness in the face of of the obvious decline of his culture. He was watching, literally, his country fall apart, wasn't he? He would spend time there seeing Manasseh come to power. And the cruelty embodied in this one man. But yet Isaiah's letter ends how? Hopeful. The triumph of God over all of this. In the midst of, of this, he still finds that way. Not to weep, but to celebrate. However, he reminds us to put out of mind the former things. What he says. He says in verse 18, he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Hard thing the world do. It's so easy for the Bible to say it. It's so hard for humans to do it. Isaiah says it. He says, Don't remember those things. Faithful believers cannot allow themselves to live in the past. And look folks, as I've gotten older and there's a lot more past, it's so hard not to live in it. It's so hard not to to think back about those things all the time. The people I've lost and the people that I used to be close to and that I'm not close to anymore. The people that I could be tempted to feel like that I was betrayed by. It's so easy to get caught in that all over again. I used to pick about, especially my father, was that I felt like, and I would sometimes say it, that my dad had never forgiven anything. Especially in the latter years of his life. It felt like he still held every grudge he'd ever held in his life. Now, I understand it more. I understand how I can take my eyes off of Christ and put them on the past and not forgive any of it. Take it so personally. I realize now. So that's what we, we preach against tonight. We're always, as believers, we're always straining and reaching for the future. We do not make a god out of how things were. We trust the Lord with the future as well as with the past. That's another part, folks. I get it. You know, one of the, some of the biggest arguments we can ever have in the church is are motivated, Miss Pansy, when things change. And it's not just the music. No offense, most churches are allergic to any change whatsoever, right? Any change. We can make a God out of the past, can't we? It's familiar. We like it. It's the way we've always done it. We grew up with that. And it's so easy to get caught in that. It's so easy. But we're not that way. We're not, we don't just throw away the past. We don't see the past as an enemy. But when change comes, we embrace change. We don't see change within the church as a bad thing. We see so changes when it's motivated by the gospel and it's motivated by, by prayer and right thinking as, as a good thing. We want to see change come. We trust the Lord with the future as well as with the past. When the past is painful, when the future is frightening, when we do not have the confidence to go on in strength, we know that the Lord has all things firmly under His control. This is an exercise in how much we trust God. Because deep down we want to trust ourselves. I going to tell you, if we're going to walk the path, we have to place our trust in Him. Through Isaiah, the Lord reminds us that He is doing a new thing and that we must look for it. It's what He says in verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. You don't realize it, guys. The world's changing. And it's not changing for the worse. In some ways, it's changing for the better. Because He's going to shine out more clearly. The darker the world gets in sin and shame, the more the cross shines out as the only hope. We're not going to come to a point to where we lose the battle. We will win the battle as it grows more dark out there. He looks even brighter still. Shines out the clearer. We cannot merely stumble along, but we must seek out the signs that a new day dawns soon. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Am I looking for evidence that the new day dawns? Am I looking for evidence? Not that I should lose confidence, but I see in those tiny, little, everyday miracles... The fact that my God reigns. I want to see the Red Sea divided, but every day God's working these wonderful miracles that I'm going right past. You know, one of the things always pained me was was that I had been I had preached these so many weddings in my ministry, and a lot of those marriages had failed. Had failed. And I was like, "What in the world?" I mean, oftentimes I would want to, you know, to to blame myself. But then I started saying to myself, "Wow!" But some of them are succeeding in a world so torn by strife, in a world so in which it's so difficult to, to to stay married and have a family. Many of them are succeeding, and they're flourishing. And if I see every, every loss as a defeat, man, I need to see every, every, every continued family as a miracle of God. A work that only God could do. Because by all rights, they ought to all fail. But they don't. They don't. And that God takes people no more ready to be married than, than, uh, than a child and he makes a success out of them every day. Because he does, because it's his it's a it's a demonstration of his power. Isaiah's promises that Christ will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Someday the agony and the frustration of this time will be over. And when the day dawns, Christ will reign in peace forever. That's the promise. Look, John Chrysostom, uh, the Bishop of Constantinople, preached in about 400 A.D. It's amazing that we've got a snippet from a sermon preached in 400 A.D. That's what he said. He said, Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, and again for forgiveness has risen from the grave that no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it all by enduring it. 400 A.D., that close to the cross, John knew exactly what he was talking about. Christ destroyed everything we fear because He faced and He endured everything we fear. The Bible frees us from the bondage of the past. Without it, we would be mere slaves to every hurt and insult that it was ever uttered against us. Through the truth of the gospel expressed in Holy Scripture, you and I can live in freedom from all the wrongdoings that we have done and from all that has happened to us. Uh, boy, that's a, to me, that's a twofold whammy. As I just looked at those things that stood against me. Uh, brother, the two things were, one, the things that had been done to me, and were well, the things that I had done. And as bad as I mourned those things that people had done to me, I have never gotten over the things that I did. I realize there are things that I did in my teens, and I'll be 54 at my next birthday. And there are things I did when I was a teenager. I'm no more over those things right now than I was 40 years ago. I felt just as condemned by those things now. Emotionally. Emotionally. As I did then. And I'm not talking about some fancy therapeutic idea of forgiving yourself. That's not the case at all. It's not the case at all. But I'm also not saying surrender to something in my past that the devil would use to entrap me. I did some things in my teens and in my twenties that I'm I'm very ashamed of. It. And times a terrible enemy. Because I can't do a thing about it. Not one thing. I've repented of those things. I've attempted at times to make restitution for those things, but here's the reality I can't change any of it. I'm stuck. You know what I can do? Not look backwards. I can look forward. That's way we all do. We look forward. The attitude that must propel the life of the believers is that the past is regrettable and it's hurtful, but it is also uncorrectable and unavoidable. Everybody in this room has a shameful past. Every one of you. Every one of you is just like me. Every one of you has got something back there in your life that you wish you could go back and change. Have you guys ever, you ever watched the Shawshank Redemption? The Morgan Freeman movie? Way better than the book. The movie turns out fantastic. The little is not even that good. Power filmmaking. Do you remember his parole hearing? When he's paroled? And he says a day doesn't go by, he doesn't think about it. And they wish he could go back in time and knock some sense into the kid that did that terrible thing. Brawls. who we are everybody's got that thing in our life that we wish we could go back and speak to ourselves like, say don't do this we don't get to do that we are flawed and fragile and broken human beings and we're capable of doing terrible things and once we've done them we're stuck with it we can't stay back and mourn the past we can repent of our sins and we move on To a future that Christ has secured for us. We can't be caught in the past. We can't stay back there. We've got to go forward. These terrible things happen to us and yet we must continue. Paul knew so much about pain and suffering in his life. Caused so much by way of his sin before salvation. I think Paul is the greatest example of this. Nobody suffered more for Christ than Paul did. And nobody caused more suffering for Christ than Paul did. If nothing bad had ever happened to Paul, if he was ever beaten, he was ever given the the, the 40 stripes less one, or any of those other problems, he still would have such a burden to carry because he caused so much. That's why Paul calls himself what? The chiefest sinner. The greatest sinner is Paul. So Paul both carries a burden of sorrow for the suffering he's experienced for the cross and also burden of the sorrow he caused for the cross. Nobody knows more about this than Paul does. Nobody. He addresses though the past with power in Mamertine. I've made this statement before. It's one of those things I'd love to do. I'd love to go to Rome and go to Mamertine and, and just read Paul's letter right there. He writes the most hopeful and joyous epistle in prison. We think of prison as a place of suffering. And Paul saw prison as a place of liberation. In the midst of his suffering, he masters contentment. So he is okay however God blesses him. Abased or abound, he says. Given everything, having everything taken away. He doesn't care. It's amazing. Paul learns this in prison. He writes in Philippians three thirteen 13-14. He speaks first of his stew of faith. When he writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That faith. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, he identifies his motivation for this dedication the dedication it takes to stubbornly pursue Christ when every circumstance seems like it's arrayed or lined up against you. He writes in verse 12, not that I am have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here's the thing that gets me, and I'm going to mention it later. If I read it twice, I'm, I'm, I apologize. Paul's sitting there in time writing Philippians, his last, his last letter probably. And Paul doesn't feel like he has gotten there yet. My faith is incomplete. I'm not who I need to be. I haven't, I haven't got this thing we preach about yet. And I'm like, folks, if Paul doesn't feel like he's there in time, how should you feel about your faith? If you feel like yours is not where it ought to be, a, you're probably right, and b, it's okay, because Paul says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not complete. I talk about things I have not mastered. I talk about things that I desperately need but I have not seized control of yet. So when I feel like my faith is barely hanging on, when you feel like you barely got enough, that literally it takes faith to get out of the bed every day, Paul didn't feel ready either. He's wrote the most brilliant things humans would ever read in those Pauline epistles. And the author says, I'm just not, I'm not who I need to be. I haven't got it yet. So when you and I don't have it, it's okay. When you and I aren't sure we're going to make it, it's okay. Because Paul wasn't sure either. We're off the hook. You don't have to have the answers. Because Paul, who actually writes down the answers, admits he doesn't have the answers. When you mourn, when you weep, when you sin, When you betray and you let down and you do all those things that humans do, Paul is like, you didn't have the answers. But he didn't either. He's in prison, facing despair and death at the hands of a totalitarian regime. Paul insists that he's pressing forward in order to make this kind of faith his own. In startling words, he makes it clear that he's not the man that he should be or could be. Not ready to face the challenges of life, Paul only insists that he is pressing onward toward the kind of maturity for which Christ died to inaugurate. There's another thing, another aspect of this that I think we probably need to make just just a moment. As grand as Paul's writings are, as important as Paul is to our understanding of of everything important in the Bible, right? We won't talk about one subject of, of absolute importance without making reference to Paul, will we? Paul is vital to our understanding. Those books are essential. And Paul still says, wait a second, we're looking to Jesus. Only He had it. We don't. Only he really understood what we're talking about. We we are under the divine superintendency of the Lord in which he has Paul write about things that Paul didn't even understand. He didn't grasp himself. But Paul knew who did. Jesus did. Jesus did. So the one in whom we placed our faith is not Paul, but is the one who absolutely died to inaugurate what we are now trying to live out, and who understands it completely. You don't base your faith on Paul. You base your faith on Christ. Your pastuo faith is in our Lord. The motivation for this commitment to Christ is that the Savior has made Paul his own. That's the that beautiful statement. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There is no greater statement Of the sovereignty of God over salvation. That statement right there. Why is Paul who he says he is? Because Jesus made him his own. Why are you who you hope to be? Because Jesus has made you his own. You are not here depending on your work. You are depending on the finished work of Christ. How does Paul cope with his lack of faith and maturity? Paul sees himself as incomplete, as lacking then. How should we see ourselves? By forgetting the past and straining forward toward the future. Everyone wants to lie down to quit, to accept and embrace the failure that is obviously ours. You know, when I've taught this to kids in the past, and I've done this for youth on multiple occasions, I'm always struck by an image that I saw several years ago. I remember me telling you guys who Green Boots is. Green Boots is a dead person on Everest. Because typically what you do with people who die on Everest is they're left there. A, there's not really the apparatus for bringing people down. And B, it's just one of those things that people who, who are crazy enough to climb Everest are okay with becoming a part of Everest. Green Boots is probably a female. We're not sure. The boots are the only thing that shows but they're literally used as a marker on Everest. One of the places as that is used by people who are climbing to know where they are. Now, I, I do that to say this. Most people who die, some people who die up there die because of accidents. But some people who go up there die just simply because they stop. Because when you're starting to When your body is starting to be attacked by hypothermia, it instinctively just wants to stop, to sit down. You become sleepy, and then what happens? You fall asleep and you never wake up. Ever. What we're talking about tonight is the ability that when your body is crying out to sleep, You would deny it. And you'd keep moving. You keep climbing toward the top, even when you want to quit. Even when you say to yourself, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. You just keep getting up. Somebody asked me one time, What do you do in the face of tragedy? I can only think of one thing. You know what you do, brother? You breathe. Just breathe. You Concentrate on the most basic things. One moment after another. You make it. That's what you do. Not that it's ever going to be better again. But you just make it. Paul says that we have to keep moving toward the prize. A goal that he calls the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beautiful words. The upward call. Paul's literally saying to us, one of these days I'm going to hear the upward call. One of these days is going to be my day. And I'm not going to fear it. I long for it. I want that day to come. The prize, the objective, the victory is death. The final breath taken and given to God is a sacrifice so that we then as transformed believers will do nothing but surrender to Christ completely in body and soul. We've struggled and we wanted to quit. And we wanted to sit down and we just wanted to freeze to death. But what did we do? We kept climbing that mountain till we reached that very summit, that place that we never thought we could be. And we're finally there and we say, okay, God, it's that day. Everything for which we fight and scrap now becomes worthless and meaningless. At this point, we can finally rest knowing that we've given our all to the King who died for our ransom. Where in all the world do we find the courage to submit so utterly to Christ that we welcome death and not... Welcome death and not see it as defeat, but as victory, and see our God's hand on every moment of our trials and grief. Well, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians five six through seven, we persuades the church to continue with boldness by saying, "So we are of good we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight." The courage of the church comes from the fact that we are. That we do not fear death the way the lost world does. By the way, our governor got in a lot of trouble for saying that this week. I'm not sure if he misapplied it, but there's definitely truth there. We We don't fear death. We don't fear death the way the world does. A world without hope in Christ should have fear of death. We know what is on the other side. We know what awaits, don't we? We know exactly, precisely what it is. We know that it is our victory, not our defeat. See, for the believer, death is truly swallowed up in victory. Live or die, the believing heart and the enraptured soul bring honor and glory to God until the final epic moments wane away. Look, as hard as it may be, churches need to love each other and trust their leaders. Hard, funny place to stick this in, but it's true. Nonetheless. We do. We need to love each other, and trust our leaders. We're called to do two things and do them well. Love each other, trust your leadership. Bottom line. It's not to say that mistakes are not made. They truly are made by leaders like me. I've made a bunch. So doubt about it. I've made a ton of mistakes. I usually have no clue what to do. Not one clue. And anybody else who's been in leadership in church knows you know no clue either. You are making it up as you went. The truth is that all leaders make mistakes. It's easy to coach from the stands, and that being right all the time is not a prerequisite for authority. Sometimes the decisions have no right answer, and every solution is wrong. I have been in those deacons' meetings where we started talking about what to do, and we came very quickly to the realization, didn't we, men, that everything we did was the wrong thing. That everything we did was going to alienate somebody and make somebody mad. And there was no avoiding it. We were stuck with a terrible hand. And we were going to play that hand. It is life. Our reaction as a church is to walk by faith and not by sight. This is a wonderful, so pithy a statement, right? We walk by faith and not by sight. It fits on a t-shirt and stuff like that and we act like it's nothing. But it actually says everything in the world about the Christian experience. Hey, church member, how do you walk by faith and not by sight? Are your leaders perfect? No. Are they going to do some things that you don't like sometimes? Absolutely. Do you fall out on the floor and kick your feet? Do you cry and, and quit everything and act like so many of the babies in church? No. You walk by faith and not by sight you realize that some things, sometimes things just aren't going to be the way you want them. But you walk by faith and not by sight. When you really start walking by faith and not by sight, suddenly you're just not as upset about things as you used to be. You realize that God works just as much when your leaders are incompetent as He does when they're surprisingly competent. Because I tell you what, every time we're competent guys, it's surprising, isn't it? It is. It its Every time we really kind of get a grasp, kind of know what to do, it's real surprising. But God is glorified just as much in both. If I fail as your pastor, God can still be glorified. Because we walk by faith and by sight. Look, Dante Alighieri in his poem Paradiso reminds us, And in his will is our peace. The peace for which we long, the emotional stability to labor for as long and as hard as we have breath to give every iota of a life defined by misery and disappointment back to God with enthusiasm and not with groaning is found only in His will. Man, when I embrace God's will, when I truly embrace God's will, I am not going to be contentious. You know why the church is contentious? You know how the church can, can have squabbles and fighting and fussing and crying and all these kind of things I'm supposed to have? Because you've got a whole bunch of people in there that are, that are called by God to embrace His will and they're absolutely refusing to do it. They decided they know better. What they've really decided is they are the conduit of God's will. Really what they're saying is that what their way is God's way. That God's cool like that. And no offense, I've met a lot of human beings in my life. I don't think I know anyone that I would trust to speak for God. Not one. Nada. Not going to happen. Unfortunately, the will of the Lord can feel kind of cloudy and undefined or so impossibly large that our lives are washed out in its light. Paul's answer to this final dilemma is so pithy that it's often treated with contempt but it contains a wealth of wisdom as a standard and not merely a motto. What does Paul say? We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to step out in faith. And I can't always see the ground beneath me. I don't always know that it's going to work out. In fact, oftentimes, more often than not, I have no confidence whatsoever that it's going to be something that I can live with. But I walk by faith and not by sight. I'm trusting God beyond my ability to understand. I think that's where the rubber really meets the road, men and women, in this room right now. Is that most of us trust God to the limit of our own personal understanding. Once it goes beyond the borders of our perception and our understanding, we simply do not trust Him anymore. That's why we'll trust Him, but we won't trust Him with our health. We won't trust Him with our money. We won't trust Him with our boat. We won't trust Him with this. that. You know why? Because it's beyond the borders of our understanding. What we need for God to do is lay out the details. The only things I've learned about God is He's not into doing my... He's not into helping me out in that way. He's got a plan. You know what He needs me to do, Brother Joseph? Trust Him. He needs me to walk by faith and not by sight. Something I'm terrible at. Every day, no matter how we feel or the challenge that we expect to overcome, the attacks that inevitably come our way or the episodes of confusion that dominate our wisdom, we walk by faith and not by our own realization or our own intellect. Every day we do that. We walk by faith. We trust God. How many of you got in your car this morning and went to work? How'd you ever make it? How'd you ever make it? How'd you not have a blowout and die? How'd you not get to an intersection where you stopped, but the guy coming didn't stop? Do you know what a risky endeavor it was to get in your car and drive to work today? Do you know how many terrible things could have happened today? We walk by faith in them. You did that by faith, didn't you? You got in your car and you cranked and never even thought anything about it. You made the assumption that what would happen? You'd arrive at work on time. Hopefully, on time. Close to on time. Within the standard deviation that's associated with being on time. There we go. For my friends. As a people, the church is built on suffering that's modeled after that of Jesus. As John of the cross, and this is one of those things I think we need to really remember, by the way. Not Bible, but it's it's, it's good. It's good stuff. John of the cross said, when anything disagreeable or displeasing happens, do you remember Christ crucified and be silent? Whenever I don't like the hand I've been dealt, remember Christ crucified and shut up. Because Jesus suffered for my sins. I can take a little punishment. Jesus suffered for my sins. Things aren't always going to work out, but I've got heaven. I got heaven. Believers trust God to do the right thing. We believe that Christ intervenes and that His will is superior to our predilections, to our taste, to our desires. God's will is better. I want some things to happen, Joseph. When God's will is different, it's better. It's better for me. It's better for the kingdom. When men and women of Christ are willing to absolutely put themselves and their will aside, that's in leadership, that's in everything. To follow others to submit to authority, to trust their leaders, and to seek contentment when it is as scarce as gold, then Jesus reigns over the church. When we've surrendered completely, then Jesus reigns. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity to come and to preach Your Word. And I pray, God, that I've I've, I've done so adequately tonight. Father God, I thank You, Lord, for providing me with it. Father God, I thank You, Lord, for touching my heart first. Because I know, Father God, there's so many ways in which, God, I just... God, I don't trust beyond my grasp, Father God. I don't trust beyond my understanding. And I want to to fret over things, Father God. But I know, God, that You're in control. God, when the the odds feel the longest, when I feel like, God, I'm the most in the hole and there's no way I'm ever going to make it out, God, I know, Lord, that You're even more in control now. Father God, I pray, God, that I learn to trust. And I pray, Father God, that Your people learn to trust. Because when we do that, when we really trust you, Father God, when we walk by faith and not by sight, Father, then there's peace. There's peace, God. There's peace here in your church. There's peace in our families. There's peace in our lives. We need that, God. We need that emotional peace that comes with surrendering everything to you. And that comes by walking by faith and not by sight. Lord, I thank you for all you blessed us with. And as you please, God, continue, God, to bless this church. We love you, Father God. Lift up, God, we lift up each of those, Lord, who over the past several days, Father God, have faced sickness or, or, or struggle of some kind. But we know, God, that you are good, Lord, and that you are blessing them now. We thank you, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.